Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here at Harvest, if I haven't met you before. And we are in Ecclesiastes. That's what we've been working through the last uh, two months or so. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It will also be, also be up on the screen as well. But if you do have your Bible, just encourage you to follow along either in that or on your phone or whatever, just so that you're like physically like working with God's word too um, as we work through this together. And as you turn there, if you're new to Harvest or if you're just joining us in this series, as we work through Ecclesiastes, you may be like, that's an interesting book of the Bible to work through. And the answer would be yes. Um, but it's been so good for us to be in it as we see this figure, Kohelet, or some believe it to be King Solomon, who is doing this experiment to try to find if there's meaning, purpose, or value in life apart from God. And so he's running after thing after thing to see if what this world has to offer can actually fill us, can actually give us hope in life. But time and time again, to the teacher, it's felt like he's trying to grasp after smoke or after vapor, that things are vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless. And we continue in his experiment in chapter 5, verse 8, as he kind of takes through the hopper now riches and wealth to see if that can gain him anything in this world. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and so as he comes, he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Let's pray. God, all of us in this room, no matter where we're at with you, we all desire to know what true meaning in this life is. Lord, would you help us this morning to see that life, meaning, purpose, value cannot be found in what this world has to offer us, but only in what you've given as the greatest gift of all. God, would you help me to speak rightly? Would you help me to just share what needs to be shared for my brothers and sisters here so that they might be blessed by your words and by the work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts? Lord, let us, help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted and help us to be reassured and encouraged where we need to be encouraged. 
Thank you, God, that you walk in front of us in all things, and you've gone before us in this morning. Would we just follow after you? In your name, amen. All right, first we're going to do something together. And if you are newer here, we don't always do stuff like this. But what, um, what I need you to do is I need everybody in the room, either with a head nod or a thumbs up, say that they will agree to follow along with what I say. I'm not going to make you do anything weird. Adam's down. Thank you, Adam. Um, but just, just nod and be like, okay, we'll go with it. I'm not going to make you even leave your seats. This is great. Because what you didn't know this morning is when you entered church, you also entered a contest as well. And where you sat was very important. So what I need you to do is, and there's some empty chairs, so this could be interesting. Uh, but what I need you to do is reach under your chair and in the front kind of section, if you feel any, I don't see everybody reaching, come on now. Uh, if you feel something a little bit papery underneath your chair, you are a winner. <laughs> and if you see any open chairs near you, you may want to go for that as well. Oh, we have a winner. Oh, that's awesome. That, that's great for you. If you, if you won, uh, <laughs> it's not that, <laughs> whatever that may be. No, this will be, <laughs> this will be green. This will be green for sure. Okay. So we have our winners. Let's give a hand to our winners who just won our contest this morning. A $5 gift card of sorts to wherever you choose to spend it. But the only thing is you guys agreed that you would do whatever I say. So I would like you to give that to the person on your right, actually. Give that to the person on your right. Let's give a hand to our new winners. Now you guys get to enjoy the fruits of someone else's labor of reaching, which is so great, but, thank you, but I would like you to actually pass that back to the person that you just got it from, and let's congratulate our winners that we originally had again. And if you could give that back to me at the end of the service, actually, no, you can keep it, well done, you win. Money can be a frustrating thing. One second we have it, and we, it can be exhilarating to gain money, especially like when you get that first paycheck. All of us probably remember that first paycheck, $7, no, whatever it was, right? But whatever that amount was, you were excited about that. Jamba Juice, thank you for my first paycheck, right? But the second that we get it, we're giving it away again. And just like it's passing back between person after person, it seems like this cyclical process of, of one second having money and the next second it's gone again. And it's this never-ending cycle. It always feels out of reach, like no matter what I gain, it's leaving for some reason or another. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes, as he's doing this experiment and then taking his uncontrolled variable, like a science experiment, of money and putting that into his hypothesis, can I find meaning in this life through money apart from God? He sees that money is frustrating. That no matter how hard he works for it, and he gains quite a bit, he can't find true meaning in it. Whether you're here as a follower of Jesus or as someone just still checking out to see who Jesus is, 
And is there meaning of life in him, in him alone? We all need to ask ourselves this question. Do I believe that money can gain me something that can't be found in Christ? Do I believe that money can gain me something that can't be found in Christ? Our truth statement, um, which is on our next slide, is kind of just the, the overview of some of the takeaways of the passage. The pursuit of wealth will never satisfy us, but the gift of God occupies our hearts with gladness. In verses 8 and 9, we're only just really going to touch on them, but let's revisit them again. Verses 8 and 9. This is what he says. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. It's pretty easy for us to look around in our world or to watch the news for five minutes and see that there is injustice in this world. And it's because one person is trying to get ahead of another, but even above them are others trying to get higher still. And in the meantime, other people are being pushed to the bottom. As Timon and Pumbaa say it best in The Lion King, when Simba's feeling down, Pumbaa says, Kids, kid, what's eating you? And Timon says, Nothing. He's at the top of the food chain. Thus is our life as well a lot of the time, whether it's in politics or the workplace or in social groups or at school or whatever it may be in your class, people are working to be at the top of the food chain no matter the cost. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised when you see injustice because we know this is how the world works. Philip Ryken, who's an author of a great commentary that I've been reading on Ecclesiastes, in reference to verses 8 and 9, says this. To this point, the preacher's been talking about wealth and poverty on the national scale. But beginning in verse 10, he bring thing, brings things down to the personal level. He kind of starts at this. This is the condition of our world when people pursue power and wealth. This is what it brings about. But it starts somewhere. So let's start at the personal level. Because every powerful and rich person, they didn't just start in a system. It started with a heart condition of where they ended up and how they got to where they're at. And so that's where we're going to sit as well. This personal level of diving into our hearts and looking, what, what, looking at what exists so the teacher in this, Kohelet or Solomon, um, was a very wealthy man, as we've already seen. And he's not just like hit the lottery kind of wealthy. He's like Google, Disney, Amazon wealthy. Like this guy has money on money on money. In Ecclesiastes 2.8, he says, I amass silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Not just the tre treasure of a king or a province or a state but the treasure of kings and provinces, of lands, money on money on money. So you could say his experiment went really well. The, the data concludes that, that he, he went after seeing if wealth could, and he had no problem accruing it. He gained tons and tons of wealth, which I think 
for us should be a reminder. If we ever think that we can test something that this world has to offer and just say, you know what, I'm just going to dabble and see if I can find meaning apart from God in this area, it always grows and goes further than we could ever imagine. I doubt Solomon had in mind when he set out to gain wealth that there was just a number that was like to what he actually gained. When we pursue things of this world, it grows to an extent where it's like, how did I get here? And it just continues to amass and grow to the point where it's like, Either this is amazing or this is awful. In Ecclesiastes verse ten, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, we see the results of his experiment at the start, really, um, of the passage. And then he kind of fleshes out the data of how he came to this conclusion, how he came to these results. So verse 10, he says this, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless, or this too is vanity or vapor. Whoever loves money or wealth never has enough of it. They're never like, I'm good now. I don't need anything else. And they're also never satisfied as well. And it brings up the primary issue with money or with wealth that he's come across and that he's seen in his experiment is whoever loves money. That this isn't just like an exterior sort of condition of being part of a system, but this actually goes down to the heart. Whoever loves money never has money enough, will never be satisfied, will find out that it's truly meaningless to pursue money. And for some of us in this room, we may be like, oh, phew. Like, I don't love money, right? I I like money. I enjoy money. Money's good, but I don't love it. Like, love is a totally different level of what the passage here is talking about. But before we say that over ourselves, let's kind of see what the text reveals of the result or the data that he collected to kind of reveal the condition of our hearts where maybe there's a hidden love of money that we may possess and have to come to grips with being real with ourselves about that. Verse 11, we dive into his data. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them. I get this picture of like a professional athlete or or famous actor or actress that has a garage where it just has cars and cars and cars. Maybe some they've driven a couple times, but there's probably some in there that they've never even touched. This passage says as goods increase, and we know that through commercials, people are always going to put stuff out there that say you need to buy this, you need to have this. Well, so do those who consume them. People will keep consuming these things. But what good are they to us ultimately to just keep consuming because we'll just end up staring at them, collecting dust? Parents in the room, you've probably seen this with your kids at times where you're stoked on this present that you're going to get them for Christmas or their birthday or just because, right? And you present it to them and they're excited, they're stoked. And a week later, they're on to the next thing that the commercial that their friend has, that they read about, that they hear about. 
And I've got to have that too. And the toy that was once great is now collecting dust in the corner of their room. Or there's the appliances or the toys that we need that a year, a year and a half later are in our garage sales, hoping that we get a 15th of the return of what we spent on it because it was just collecting dust in our garages, only good for us to look upon. Verse 12 says this, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. We accrue money, we, we gain finances because we want comfort a lot of the time, and we want rest. But the teacher says here, just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're going to get a good night's sleep. Doesn't mean that it's going to bring you the comfort that your heart and your mind actually need to answer any of the questions that you have. There was a TV show or a movie that I saw once, and I couldn't remember the, the exact reference, but there was a character that did the, um, the, aid, the age-old adage of putting their, their money under their mattress at night, right? Because they felt more comfortable keeping it close, and there was a sense of safety and security, keep, keeping as close to their person as possible, that they would put it there. But what was ironic in it is that ultimately they ended up with back trouble because of all the lumps in their bed from all the money that they had stowed underneath. That the very comfort and safety they thought in keeping their money close to them was causing them harm and not giving them a good night's sleep. Verses 13 and 14, he goes on, and it the, the tone of it changes to even more drastic. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. He says this interesting saying, a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. And if you've been working through Ecclesiastes, we know that that, that under the sun statement is like him addressing his controlled variable in the experiment, saying that I will try all these other things, but apart from God. I'm going to keep my eye level of what I'm focused on below the sun, just a pavement level to see what this world has to offer. And he says, under the sun, on a worldly level, I've seen a grievous evil, not just something that's bad, not just something that's wrong, but a kind of wrong or a kind of bad that brings sorrow to one's heart, a grievous evil. And it's kind of a two-parter. He says that um, part of it, is people could hoard wealth to their own harm or that the wealth that they've worked so hard for can be lost in some sort of misfortune. And back in his time as a king, maybe it's worth trying to think through how could someone gain so much money that it would actually harm them or hurt them? Well, there's probably people that were after his life at times because whoever had the money... They were top dog, and you wanted to be top dog next. There could be people that would try to blackmail or people that would try to steal and the loss of sense of security when you're robbed. And some of those things are true today for, for people of wealth um, as well. But there also is a cost with pursuing wealth that all of us can experience to where hoarding wealth can harm us. We can have loss of relationships because we're pursuing money over pursuing people. 
There can be friendships that are broken over money, disagreements. There can be in the workplace co-workers that you stepped on to get over to that next advancement in your career. I was working with high schoolers and middle schoolers, and I don't say this to make anyone feel bad whatsoever. I've talked to more boys that just wish, wishes that their dad or their mom pursued them like they pursue their career. There can be brokenness in families where it's hard to see the love that's taking place because it seems like all they're after is the next dollar. There can be pride. There can be anxiety and stress that keeps us up at night because it's never enough. We're never satisfied. It's always the next day of work, always the next dollar. He also says that wealth can be lost in misfortune, and probably some of us know this all too well. There can be a bad investment. There can be a loss of a job in a recession or you being made an example of for no apparent reason other than your boss just wants people to remember who's on top. There can be unexpected hospital trips. There can be car accidents. And there can be even the death of a loved one or a family member. All things that no matter how hard we work to store up and save and be in the right spot financially to take care of it, they're things that ultimately money can't fix or even if we prepare as well as we can, it still doesn't suffice. Because at the end of it, even if we did save up money to take care of it, are we truly satisfied? Is there truly meaning in it to just prepare for the worst? Verse 15 says this, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. That just as we come into the world with nothing and out of no work of our own, so as we leave, as when we die, we don't get to die with our hands full of cash and take it on into the next life. All our worldly possessions, all our worldly wealth, will leave behind. And the teacher says that this is also a grievous evil, that that takes place. Verses 16 and 17, this too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. We see his frustration as he's tried to make money his meaning, as he's tried to make wealth what fills him up and brings him life, but it's not enough. That it's like trying to grasp after smoke. One second he has it, and the next second his, he, it's gone, whether in life or in death. Just as you passed the five from one person to the other, back to the original. It comes and it goes. And this section really reminded me, this whole passage of Ebenezer Scrooge from uh, A Christmas Carol. And how this man, his pursuit is wealth, his love is wealth, and his money at the cost of everyone else and everything else. He loses family 
relationships, friends, his co-workers despise him. And when we see him towards that opening scene, alone in his home, in darkness, in the cold, eating a meal by himself, we're, as an audience, frustrated, going like, really, is this how you want to live your life? Do you think this is as good as it gets? But I wonder if we could step back from our own life as well if we could identify where we pursue wealth, thinking that it could bring us meaning, would we be just as frustrated? Would we be just as sad, being like, do you really think this is going to be what fixes it? Do you really think this is the answer to what life revolves around? Aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> Talking about money is hard. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's uncomfortable. It's exposing and revealing at times, too. That's actually a good indicator a lot of time. If, if your conversations about money usually get heated or, or anxious or stressed, there may be something going on in your heart that isn't good, just like it is with me. Do you find yourself frustrated with the unreliability of money? In your frustration, though, even as we're going through this passage, does this remind you of, oh, that's right. Money is like this smoky thing, right? It's I try to get it, but it's gone the next. I can't put my trust or my hope in it. Or in your frustration, as you hear this passage unfolded, do you go, no, I can prove that if I just work harder, Money can bring me the meaning that I want it to. If I just work harder at it, if I just pursue it more. Because we pursue the things that we love. When I first wanted to date my wife, I pursued her. I wanted to be with her, even though she wasn't very sure about me at that time, right? But that didn't cause me to give up because I knew there was something more there. And when we were dating, I pursued her. And as we were engaged, I pursued her. As we're married, I pursue her because I love her. We pursue the things we love. Don't rule money off the table. If you, if you look at an average week, an average month, an average season of your life, if that rises to the top of what you're pursuing, there may be a hidden love condition that your heart has. Our kind of modern-day Kohelet, a guy named Jim Carrey, if you've ever heard of him, who has gone after a lot of things that this world has to offer to see if he can find meaning as well. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. This guy is not a follower of Jesus, but in his pursuit of fame, wealth, and fortune, it's not the answer. And kind of clearly in his career, we can see he's moved on from that. Thank goodness Jesus is very good at exposing the loves of our hearts. And he often, throughout the New Testament, actually exposes the love of money. One day, a, a young rich ruler comes to Jesus with an important question about eternal Life And your Bibles turn to Luke chapter 18. 
Luke chapter 18. It's to the right a bit. You'll see Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The start of this passage, this man comes in, and it seems like his perspective isn't like the teacher Kohelet, where he's doing things under the sun. It's above the sun. He's like, I, I want to know how do I have eternal life? Like, I want to I know how do I go to heaven? How do I have the things of God that last forever? Morality and religion are active in this man's life. But Jesus sees through our outward expressions of faith. And he goes to what our hearts truly love. This man says, I've kept all the commandments. Since I was a boy. And Jesus, without even batting an eye, goes to the part of this man's heart where he knows ultimately he loves this more than he loves Jesus. Our religion and our morality doesn't fake Jesus out. He sees our hearts. He knows us. And he reveals to us in his grace where we haven't chosen him. Jesus is asking this man, as he asks him to sell everything and follow him, he's asking him, will you trust me with what you love most? Will you trust me with what you love most? The young man is confronted with what he claims to love, God, eternity with God, and confronted with what he actually loves most. And God is giving him a choice. Will you choose me? Will you trust me with what you love and love me above all other things? But he turns his back on Jesus and he walks away sad because in that moment, which is really ironic, he's sad about this. He knows the choice that he's making is not the right one. But he won't give up the wealth that he's accrued for himself. Matthew 6, 24 as it was read a little earlier, says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The young king or the young man walks away sad because he's chosen his master to be wealth and riches and turned the, his back on the true master of all life and the one who within him is eternal life. And the sad thing is, the rich young ruler has amassed all this wealth, but ultimately everything that he's gathered will never be able to pay the debt of the biggest cost that he's accrued for himself. 
the biggest cost that he could never pay off with all the riches in the world. Because sin is when we turn our back on God and we run after things of this world to master us. We pursue other loves. We think that it will be the, the, finally the thing that completes us or fulfills us or brings us meaning or purpose or value in this life. But when we don't choose God, it's sin. When we run after other loves, it's sin. In Romans 6.23 says that there is a cost to sin. That the wages of sin is death. What sin gains us, even though we've gained all these other worldly things, is death. His question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is, trust me above all else. Jesus left his heavenly riches, his heavenly glory, his heavenly majesty to come to earth so that he could pay the debt that we could never pay with what we gain for ourselves worldly. That he took on our sin, he took on the cost of death on the cross, so that whoever believes in him may have life, eternal life, the very question that the young man is asking him. But he looks at his wealth and for whatever reason decides this is the safer route. This is what actually somehow is going to save me. And we have no idea if this guy ended up following Jesus or not. But I'm, I'm wondering if when Jesus was on the cross, if this rich young man came and he witnessed, or maybe he just heard about it, and he was so convicted, how could I have chosen my wealth over the one that would give his life? The greatest treasure, eternal life in Christ Jesus. No worldly riches could ever buy us that. Only God's son paying for it on the cross. Romans 6.23 continued, says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you treasure Jesus above all else? Does everything else pale in comparison to the riches, the glories, the heavenly majesty, the wonders, the heavenly treasure that is within Christ. If we choose what this world has to offer, we will walk around sad like the rich young man, knowing that this isn't as good as it gets, knowing that we're running after vapor and the smoke of Ecclesiastes. But to end, we know still that we live in a world where money plays a huge role in that. In our day-to-day -day lives, money. In everything I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that money is bad. The love of money is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes points out is ultimately what leads us to these kinds of evils. So how do we, if we choose to follow Jesus, how do we have right relationship with money, with our finances in this world? Well, Ecclesiastes actually kind of answers that for us. Flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. 
It's also up on the screen. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink, to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God, God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. The teacher can't help but to look above the sun to like break his experiment and look to God and say, is there any hope in this? And as he looks above the sun, as he looks to God, he sees that it's good to find satisfaction, to be happy in our work, in a job that's our dream job, and in the job that we are hoping is just a stepping stone to the next job that we want. But he tells us to stop, find satisfaction, look to God, and be thankful. Be thankful that he's given you the ability to provide for yourself, for your family. And any wealth or possessions that you gain from what God has given, give him thanks and enjoy them. Don't look to the next dollar. Don't look to the next thing. Enjoy what you have now. And in so doing, lift your eyes to God, giving thanks that he is the great provider and that it keeps us occupied with gladness of heart to be thankful, to recognize that this is from God. There's two ways that I thought of that we can fight against money being our master. It's to both give and receive. Just like that five that's passing back between you, it's to give and receive. Instead of hoarding wealth, God has called us to be people who give. In Luke 19, there's a man named Zacchaeus that has spent his whole life hoarding wealth, but when he's confronted with Jesus, similar to this rich young ruler, instead of turning away sad, he gets up and says, I've stolen from so many people, but now today I give back what I've stolen and four times the amount, and I'll also sell half my possessions and give it to the poor. When he's confronted with Jesus, he wants to give generously. And it's also to receive. One of the things that I think sometimes is hardest for us, especially in where we live, is to recognize that we are dependent. And when we come into seasons of need, do we have that same answer that comes up of, I just need to work harder? Or are we real that I need help? In Acts chapter 3, when God's church is first formed, he, it says that they would sell their possessions and give to whoever had need. One of the reasons, reasons we do tithes and offerings here is for us to practice and participate in giving of what God has given us. And then through that, too, there are many who receive from God and get to see his grace, get to see the blessing. As a follower of Jesus, are you one that seeks to see the needs of others and also make your own needs known, recognizing I need God's help? In treasuring Jesus, we treasure what he treasures because in him is the gift 
of eternal life. Let's pray. God, would you help us to look at our hearts, to look at our lives, and ask you, God, what do I love most? And God, would you, by your spirit, convict and reveal that to us, Lord? Would we not walk away from you sad when we don't respond to you in the way that you intend for us to, where we take delight in you, in your death on the cross, in your resurrection life that you offer us now? Lord, would we see our finances as a blessing from you? Would we be eager to give to others who are in need and for those that are in need in this room, Lord, and have just been trying to do it on their own? Would they see that they're a part of your family and your body? And would they acknowledge that they need help that first and foremost comes from you? Thank you, Lord, that we're your hands and feet in this world, showing people how to live with this thing, money, in a right way. Would you help us to do that? In your name, amen.